It's always good to have uh, a missionary come to visit our fellowship that's traveled the world and uh, sees the different things that are going on, uh, how God is working uh, in places that uh, a lot of times we don't even think about or hear about. Uh, but Ken and Eva have been that faithful servants to the Lord as they were called many years ago uh, to go into the world as God commands all of us and preach the word. And we've been very blessed by Ken and Eva for over 40 years coming here to Grace. I don't want to talk about ages, but I'll let Ken <laughs> do that. But um, as, uh, as most of you weren't here the last time, or some of you weren't here the last time he was here, uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, as God uh, uses Ken in such a way uh, that as he teaches, he makes things so relevant and applicable to our daily lives uh, that um, it's really uh, a joy to have him back again, and Eva as well. So please, Ken and Eva, come and grace us. Well, it's wonderful to be back here. As uh, you have heard, we have a very long history with this place and this fellowship. I was just thinking of a man who was a very close friend of mine. He used to come here. He's with the Lord Jesus now. has been quite a few years. Russ Peterson. <coughs> Maybe some of you have sat in his dental chair. <laughs> so you know the drill. <laughs> uh, Eva is going to read the scriptures for us. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2 and we'll begin at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who are in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set's purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible 
for death to keep its hold on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Are we functioning okay? No? How about now? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, a little loud. <coughs> okay. Um, one of the uh, most um, beautiful tools you can have for studying scripture is a sanctified imagination. <coughs> and I love to imagine that I'm part of something that's taking place. And this particular day that Eva just read about was the birthday of the church. There was no church before this day. There weren't any Christians either. There were Peter and John and James and that crowd, actually 120 of them, and they were Jews. And they were following Jesus, whom they believed to be their Jewish Messiah. Nothing wrong with that at all. But on this day, the 120 gathered in the upper room. Jesus had already, of course, been crucified and risen again and ascended to heaven. And he told them to wait in expectancy because they were going to get a phenomenal gift. And on this day, the gift arrived. And the gift is the Holy Spirit. That is literally God himself coming to live in people. And you'd expect something unusual to happen, wouldn't you? I mean, if God can just say a word and light appears when there never has been any light, a universe appears <laughs> when there was no matter, <laughs> sound begins when there was no sound. <clears throat> if that's just a word, what happens when the person himself arrives. And God himself came to live in these 120 people in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. And that is actually what makes an individual a Christian. It isn't doctrine and it isn't belonging to any human organization. It is literally the presence of God himself coming to live within us because that's what it takes to be a Christian. You can't be one without him. And they got a bit excited. Well, that's reasonable, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes uh, excitement and church don't always, you know, coincide, do they? I'm reminded of a, uh, an enthusiastic lady of uh, African descent <coughs> who came into a church in London and it was extremely quiet. <coughs> Every once in a while she would shout, Praise the Lord! And after the fourth time, one of the officials in the church came up behind her, tapped him on, her on the shoulder and said, We don't praise the Lord in here, madam. <laughs> and somehow I think we've perhaps lost some of the enormous enthusiasm. The day of Pentecost was, of course, during the Feast of Pentecost one of the three big feasts every year uh, for the Jews, and the Jews know how to party in a way that Christians don't. <laughs> Jews really know how to celebrate. And so their feast lasted a week. You know, 
we manage one day for Thanksgiving and perhaps a day at Christmas. <coughs> and that's about it, isn't it? Their feast lasted the week. And they're having a good time. And every Jewish man was expected, if he possibly could, to get back to Jerusalem and keep the feast in Jerusalem. And so during those days, like some kind of resort, the population was doubled or tripled for that brief period. The hotels were full, the guest houses were full, every family had out-of-town family staying with them, and the streets were noisy. And this was uh, probably the liveliest of the three annual feasts. So Jerusalem was not exactly quiet. It was alive and it was buzzing, but they'd never seen anything like these 120 who had just been filled with the Spirit of God and they poured out into the street celebrating and praising God and big smiles on their faces. And Jerusalem was stunned and they looked. They'd never seen anything like it before. And they wanted an explanation, which was, of course, the perfect opportunity for Peter to declare this, really the first Christian sermon. And it wasn't a bad one because 3,000 people got saved. Although it is not sermons that save people, you understand? (laughs) And he gives an explanation of it. I grew up in England. where the church is somewhat more traditional and has lost a lot of that original zeal and you can't always tell who is a Christian and who isn't. Sometimes there's a mixture in any worship service, probably true this morning even. And we're glad you're here. Don't, you know, not asking you to leave by any means. But usually there's a bit of a mixture. And 200 years ago, everybody went to church. Everybody. You got fined if you didn't go. (laughs) It's not quite like that in America now, is it? (laughs) Everybody went to church. And the church leaders were so comfortable. They were well paid, highly respected. And if everybody's going to be in church anyway, why bother to make an effort? They assumed that this state of affairs would continue indefinitely and the churches would always be full. But then, of course, there wasn't much else to do, was there? Hmm? Football hadn't been invented. (laughs) Golf hadn't been invented, though, of course, it's a very holy game. So what did people do? No iPhones? What did they do? What did teenagers do before the iPhone? (laughs) Everybody went to church. But that's not the case anymore. And actually last year the Archbishop of Canterbury made a statement that woke a few people up. He said... Unless we do something in 20 years, there won't be anybody in church. That's, of course, true. True of every church in every place. Unless we do something, there isn't going to be anybody. (coughs) And uh, 
the Church of England is divided into areas and each area has a bishop over it and various churches within his sphere. And the bishop who presides over our part of Northern Ireland is an evangelical, believe it or not. <coughs> and actually in 2012, he said, 2015 is going to be a year of mission. And every church in this region must have a mission in 2015. Well, stunning, isn't it? What had we been doing before then? Well, well, let's not ask that question. But we're going to have a mission in 2015. So our church was planning a mission, and it was three years into planning, and they had all kinds of activities. But one of them took the form of visiting every house in the district. And there was a big plan of the town up on the wall, and every house was given a small square. And if somebody had been to visit that house, then they filled it in in red, and you could see all the ones that had not yet been visited. And every church member was expected to join in this visitation program. And you could preach the gospel to people on the doorstep if you felt you could do that. Or you could just ask them to come to a barbecue if that was easy. <clears throat> or you had a questionnaire and you could conduct a survey and find out what people really think if they'll tell you. <clears throat> and about a third of the church was absolutely terrified by this project. What? actually go to a house I haven't been to, I don't know who lives there, and, and represent the church? Yeah, they were really scared. But it was very good. It improved their prayer life no end. <laughs> so I would like you to pretend this morning that you're not sitting comfortably in a church in California, but you are in Northern Ireland, and you are about to visit some homes that you've never been to before, and you don't know who lives there. So you're praying, okay, well, let, let, let this be the house of one of my fellow church members who's a real friend. Yeah. <clears throat> so you go and you ring the doorbell and you hear these really heavy footsteps approaching the door and the door opens and here is a man from the Middle East, six feet, four inches tall, carrying a weapon and in a seriously bad temper. <laughs> okay? Now, what's your approach? Do you know what to say to him? <laughs> Perhaps that would be a fairly short conversation. <clears throat> so now you go to the second house thinking, well, it can only improve after that, <laughs> can't it? <clears throat> so you arrive at the second house and then the door is opened by a man who obviously has a very nasty disease, a contagious disease, easily transmitted, and a socially embarrassing disease. And as far as he knows, he will die from it. And he's ostracized 
by society some of them because they don't want to catch it others because they think they know how he got it and they don't want to be associated if you got a message for him what would you say to him would you know <laughs> well what a great morning you're having let's try a third third time lucky right <clears throat> so you try the third door and you hear the squeak of the wheels of a poorly maintained wheelchair. And the door is opened, and there's a man in the wheelchair, but he can't propel it by himself. Somebody else has had to push him up to the door. <coughs> and he is paralyzed from the neck down. Nothing works. And he's depressed. Not only is he depressed... But he feels terribly guilty. So useless. He can't do anything. He needs to eat, which means somebody else has to go to work to earn the money to buy the food. Somebody else has to prepare the food and actually feed him every spoonful because he can't feed himself. Then, of course, when you eat... Soon after that, there's another problem, isn't there? <laughs> now he has to go to the bathroom, can't get himself there, of course. So he has to be conveyed to the bathroom and uh, lifted onto the seat, cleaned up, and brought back again. It's embarrassing. His whole days are just a burden on the rest of the family. Can't make a contribution. <laughs> well, that's three. Just time for one more visit before lunch. <laughs> so what happens when you get to the fourth house? Well, you get there and you've got a man who has to work but the only job he can get is very unpopular and he is betraying what he believes in and he has no friends he is isolated from the rest of his community by the job that he's doing, hates himself for doing it, but he can't find any other work. And as far as he can see, that will be the rest of his life. Do you know what to say to him, dear? Huh. Well, let me ask you another question. Would Jesus know what to say to him? Would he? What do you think? Or do you think? <laughs> you think he would? No. No. Just before you stone me to death, let me tell you why. <laughs> Jesus' own words. Truly, truly. And now, of course, you know, Jesus was not in the habit of lying, was he? 
So when he says truly, truly, he's not saying this is truth as distinct from all the other things I say. <coughs> he's saying this is something you really need to latch on to. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, the words I say are not my words. But the Father who lives in me, he does everything. Or another occasion, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I do nothing of myself. I didn't just pick these four individuals out of a hat. Actually, you meet them in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Six feet four, bad-tempered, Middle Eastern with a weapon, that's Peter. Isn't he? He's been fishing all night and caught nothing. He's in a bad temper. <laughs> and he's tired. Now, what would you say to a man like that if you were going to inter interest him in the gospel? You know, Jesus actually said what appears to be the dumbest thing you could possibly say. Let's go fishing. What? He's been fishing all night. And night is the time they do the fishing. Daytime is too hot anyway. The water is clear, it's unpolluted. The fish can see the boats from miles away. They don't come anywhere near them. They certainly don't swim into the net and say, catch me now. <coughs> and they've been out all night. And, and this isn't just a hobby, this is his livelihood. And when they go to one place and they don't catch anything, they have to go somewhere else and try there. And all their favorite spots all over the lake. And they don't turn on their little outboard motor to get there. It's a matter of dragging yourself there by the oars. And they go from place to place and try here and try there, getting more tired and more frustrated as the night goes on until he's exhausted. And no fish is bad news. This isn't a strong economy. Let's go fishing? What do you think I've been doing? <laughs> and this from a man who's never been fishing. Where did he get the idea from? See, and Jesus, by faith, always translated the will of the Father conveyed through the prompting of the Holy Spirit into words. The words I say to you, not my words. Then there's the man with the embarrassing disease. He's a leper. Isolated in his disease. Cut off from society, he can't work. <clears throat> and then after that, there's a paralyzed man. <laughs> Jesus didn't go and ring his doorbell. <laughs> 
the introduction was a bit more spectacular. Jesus was in the house teaching. And the house was packed with people who had come to listen to him. And uh, there's this paralyzed man. And he's a man without hope. But he has four friends who are much more positive than he is. And they come to him and say, we're going to take you to Jesus. And if you listen with that sanctified imagination, you'll hear him say, what for? Won't do any good, you know. I'm paralyzed. Get used to it. But they take him anyway. And they get to the house, and it's full of people. There's an overflow crowd trying to listen through the windows and through the door. There's no way they're going to get there in there with a stretcher. I told you so. Waste of time. Take me home again. So they take him up onto the roof. What are we going up here for? And then they start busting up the roof. You can't do that. The owner's going to be furious. And what's happening inside at the time? Well, Jesus is trying to teach a Bible class. (laughs) But even though Jesus was a superb teacher, I think he lost his audience. You know, when there are all these noises on the roof to begin with, and then bits of dust start trickling down, and then lumps of clay and bits of wood and the occasional scorpion, and the house is full so the people can't really move back very far, I I think his audience lost concentration. I mean... If this started on this roof this morning, I don't think you'd stay there very long. (laughs) And now this man is seriously embarrassed. Not only has he been useless ever since he's been paralyzed, just a burden on everybody, now he's the cause of this man's house getting wrecked. It might be good news if you're in the roofing business. and Jesus' Bible class has been completely ruined. And as they break up the roof, the sun starts to come in. And it's a dark little house with small windows and people everywhere anyway. And, And the sun shines through like a spotlight on a stage. And in the middle of it is this man on his stretcher and he really doesn't want to be there. And he feels worse than he's ever felt before. And everybody's staring at him and nobody is pleased to see him. (laughs) Especially the ones with big lumps on their heads where they've been hit by chunks of clay falling off the roof. (coughs) And the guy with the scorpion inside his shirt trying desperately to get it out nobody's happy to see him 
and he lands on the floor in front of Jesus and he's paralyzed, can't move. And he's in the middle of the spotlight. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Where do you get that from? From one who knows everything. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, there's a little knot of men at the back of the room and they are not there because they want to learn anything from Jesus. They're his enemies. Wherever he went, the enemies tracked him. Always waiting for him to say something unwise that they could use against him. And they think this is it. And they're whispering together, your sins are forgiven. Who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. How does he know? (laughs) He's got an infallible source. You're thinking only God can forgive sins, right? Well, so that you know that I've got authority from him to forgive sins here and now, you, stand up, take your bed home. And he did. So that they might all know then that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And then the fourth man is called Levi, whom you've heard of because he invented blue jeans. And he's universally popular. Actually, that was a different Levi. But this one is a tax collector. You see, and I know you're all good Christian Americans. And even so, I haven't heard many of you saying, Hallelujah! (laughs) Time to give the government some more of my money. No, the tax man is not particularly popular in any society. But see, in this case, Levi collected taxes from the Jews to be paid to the Romans. From his own nation to pay the enemy. And mostly those taxes were used to keep a bunch of soldiers in Jerusalem to keep the Jews suppressed. This is not a popular thing. Also, he's taking money from the holy people to give to the heathen. He's betraying not only his nation, but his religion, and the tax collector was hated. And not many people paid over the internet in those days. They actually paid in cash. And the tax collector always had cash when he was at work. And there were plenty of little Jewish gentlemen who would happily help him carry it. See, only in a different direction from the way he would. Uh, And so he had to be safeguarded and he had bodyguards. And the bodyguards isolated him from his people. And only the people actually coming to pay were allowed through. Little man hating himself 
and his job. He's got to live. So what happens? The six foot four bad tempered Middle Eastern man with a weapon becomes Peter, the leader of the apostles. The leper is cleansed and goes to show himself to the priest as a testimony to God's healing power through Jesus. Hmm. The paralyzed man who feels so useless, who feels that he has completely ruined Jesus' Bible class, actually becomes Jesus' Bible class. He is God's visual aid to show those men at the back that even though they think they know everything, (laughs) they have not yet come to terms with the magnificence of Jesus and the mercy of God. And not only did everybody in that house get the message Jesus has authority to forgive sins here and now, that paralyzed man has had his story told all over the world for 2,000 years. And people have come to believe in Jesus and to know the forgiveness of sins and the new birth in the Spirit because of that man. See, all you need to be used by God is weakness. His strength is shown at its best in our weakness. And the tax collector, you would know him as Matthew. He writes the gospel that appears first when you open the New Testament. (laughs) The bad-tempered and dangerous big guy becomes the leader of the apostles. The leper becomes a witness to the healing power of Jesus. The paralyzed man becomes a witness to the forgiveness in Jesus. And Levi becomes Matthew. Not a bad day's work, eh? (laughs) Why? Because Jesus was always where he was supposed to be, was always in tune with the Father, and only ever gave expression to what the Father wanted to do and to say. That was his only responsibility. Sometimes it brought him into conflict with people, like his mother when he was 12 years old, or Martha when her brother died. But Jesus was always obedient to his father. If you asked him at any time, excuse me, why are you in Galilee just now? That's where my father wants me. Why did you tell that exhausted fishermen to go fishing. That's what my father wanted to say. 
See, Jesus saw himself as a vehicle in whom the Father lived. And as a kind of an outpost of heaven on earth so that the Father could touch Peter and get him. And so the Father could heal the leper and so the Father could give that paralyzed man a totally new life and significance. And so that the Father could rescue Levi from what appeared to be a dead-end job into a really significant role in the spiritual life of the world. And it was Jesus' delight to let the Father get wherever he wanted to be and do whatever he wanted to do and say whatever he wanted to say. So where do you come in? What was it Jesus said? As the Father sent me... How's it go? (laughs) As the Father sent me, so I send you. The life of the Christian is to be on exactly the same terms as the life of Jesus. That just as Jesus was at any given time where the Father wanted him, that you would be at any given time where Jesus wants you. And while Jesus wouldn't know what to say, The father always knew and told him. The father was the total resource for the ministry of Jesus. And so we read these words from Peter's sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him in the midst of you, as you know. Jesus never used his own powers as God. He only walked by faith, dependent on the Father, even though he was always God. And this is his plan for you and me, that we would always be where he wants us, in tune with him, my sheep hear my voice. And letting him meet whoever we happen to be with at any given time. Because Jesus has come into us in order to get out (laughs) and meet those people. He doesn't want to stay locked up in you and me and be a spectator to our brilliant discipleship and our newest evangelistic techniques. No, he just wants us to let him out and meet all these people because he is the only soul winner he is the only one that can change the world but he can and he does when we let him that sounds exciting to me (laughs) I wonder how many six feet five Middle Eastern gentlemen are outside there waiting to meet you today Are you ready for this? Much nicer to sit in church though, isn't it? 
But what great stories we'll have to tell next week if we do what we're supposed to this week. Then church will really be alive, won't it? Hmm? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for the wonder of the life that you lived for 33 years here. And we know that for the first 30 years, it wasn't very apparent who you are. And you saw sick people that weren't healed and probably saw your own father die, didn't intervene. But thank you for the amazing things that happened as your ministry began. That this was not a result of a fantastic education you had or some distinguished physical or mental characteristics, but simple, obedient faith in your Father. And thank you that you're entrusting the mission that you began into our hands. Thank you that you didn't just give us a rule book and forgiveness, but you gave us yourself. And as you want to live in us, we would each like to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you gave yourself for me at the cross. And thank you that you have come to live within me. Now show me how to let you out so that the world that needs you so much might actually meet you and be changed. Thank you for the mission. Amen.